0: Let's turn to 1 Samuel 28. And this may be what I would call the the end of the first half of the series on the life of David. As we conclude 1 Samuel, basically, this is going to be, I think, a pause point or a breaking point between the two phases of David's life as he's been an outlaw following his great victory over Goliath. And so as we reach the end of 1 Samuel, I certainly have enjoyed what we've considered up to this point. But let's read in 1 Samuel 28, starting with verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they pitched in Gilboa. This is very similar to whenever Saul has faced the Philistines in the in the past notably when David came along and defeated Goliath this is a different time of course and when Saul saw the host of the Philistines he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled and when Saul inquired of the Lord the Lord answered him not neither by dreams nor by Urim nor by prophets Then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. This is one of the most tragic portions of Scripture that you'll ever read, in the Old Testament especially. There's nothing more tragic, of course, than what the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had to go through to pay for our sins. But here is a man that is coming to the end of his way. And I tried to decide, you know, what what to entitle this message and how we should look at this. And I'm going to turn to one of the great philosophers of all ages, one of the penultimate sages of all time. And that's Mother Goose. And Mother Goose wrote this. There was a crooked man and he walked a crooked mile. He found a crooked sixpence against a crooked style. He bought a crooked cat, which caught a crooked mouse, and they all lived together in a little crooked house. The title of the message is, There Was a Crooked King. And that is Saul that we have under consideration here. You can't find a more crooked and wicked acting man than what Saul has done during the time that he has squandered as the first appointed and anointed king of Israel. He has disobeyed God's command from day one. And most notably, in the very beginning of his kingship, whenever he didn't follow what the Lord told him to do through Samuel about destroying the enemy, he just didn't follow through with it. He disobeyed God and he made sacrifices that he shouldn't make. And he just squandered it. You know, he comes on down through time and I just can't get out of my head how he murdered, slaughtered the the Levites, all all except for one. You know, the one that ran away, got away and went and lived with, with David out in the wilderness. Don't forget, at the same time that this crooked king is living out his last days, David, remember, has followed his heart and gone down into the land of the Philistines and almost went to war against Israel, against his own nation, against Saul. But as you know, we talked last week how the, the Philistines across the board, when they saw David and his 600 men lined up to go fight and be the bodyguard of the king of Gath, they said, get him out of here. So God delivered David from that irony, from that foolishness that David had gotten himself into. And if you recall last week, I, I didn't even tell you the best news. I, I realized that's, that's the thing about preaching. You always forget things that you want to say. And I totally forgot To leave us on a high note last week after we saw how David followed his heart and he comes back and all of his wives and children, all of them have been taken by the Amalekites and he seeks after the Lord. He finally asks the Lord again, what do I do? And David goes under the direction of the Lord and gets everything back, their wives, their children, their stuff and the stuff of the Amalekites. He got all of this back. Because he followed the Lord. But he never should have been in that situation in the first place. But that shows you how good the Lord is to redeem a circumstance. David made the bad decision. David followed the foolish way. But God can redeem those circumstances. I like what Elder Sonny Piles said in many sermons that I listen to of his. He's not in the habit of doing that all the time. You know, it was a unique situation with David just because David had his circumstance redeemed and he got all of his family back and all of his men's family and all of their stuff. It doesn't mean that happens every time, which is a an interesting backdrop background to what's going on with Saul. There's no deliverance for Saul. There's no deliverance. His crookedness has finally caught up with him. So where we saw the testimony of a tested man in David had a beautiful ending and he got everything back and God redeemed the circumstance even though David followed his heart. Elsewhere, you have this crooked king who cannot get an answer from God, who has sought all of the available ways to reach out to God, but he has taken himself too far away from God. Listen, this does not mean he's not a child of God. This means that God in a timely sense is no longer going to respond By granting him deliverance. And if you think a child of God can't get in that condition, then you're just mistaken. Children of God get in those kind of conditions all the time. It doesn't mean they're not children of God. But it means that God has said, I'm just not going to answer him anymore because he has refused and rebelled so many times. And so we have Saul. While David is down there having to save his wives, and the men are saving their wives and children because David has made a foolish decision... Saul up here is seeking the Lord. He's finally turning and saying, Lord, I want an answer here. What do I need to do? I see this incredible army that's come against me. Notice it says in verse 5 of 1 Samuel 28, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. That means to shudder with terror. It also carries the idea of hastening with anxiety. In other words, you know, he, he hastens into a disaster because he's so anxious about it. And what does Saul do? Well, in in a sense, the first thing he tried to do was the right thing. He inquired of the Lord, but it's too late. The Lord's not going to answer him. You know, he's already done enough. And he's going to have to suffer the consequences for what he's done. You know, it, it might be notable to point out right here. You know, when the thief on the cross was born again next to Jesus, you know, there were two thieves there. They were both cursing Jesus. And the Spirit of God, the mercy of God intervened into the lives of one of those thieves. And he began to praise the name of God. And that's what Jesus said to him today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. You know, it's it's notable to, to point out that God didn't deliver that born-again thief from the cross, the death of the cross. You understand that? That man went ahead and suffered the consequences, but God redeemed the circumstance in the end because when he took his last breath, that thief woke up in heaven So understand, in the feel-good religion that's out there today, in the prosperity gospel that's out there today, where everything's just supposed to work out okay, that is not the case. Sometimes children of God suffer the consequences for what they do, and that's what you've got here with Saul. He is suffering a grave consequence for what he has done. And listen to me. You know, people will say, well, my actions aren't hurting anybody but myself. That is a lie. That's always a lie. You're always hurting somebody else whenever you make poor, sinful decisions. Always. That's a lie. And here is Saul, his actions are not just going to hurt himself. It's going to hurt the nation. It's going to hurt his family. It's going to hurt everything that he's connected to. So what does Saul do? Because God has refused to answer him. Saul says, well, okay, well, since I can't... And you say, well, poor Saul. No, you got to see how Saul is thinking. He's not sincere. You can't be sincere if you go and petition God one time and say, Lord, can you help me here? Tell me something here. You don't hear anything. And he says, okay, well, I'll go seek out a witch. You can't be sincere and be a turncoat and all of a sudden you're going to seek a witch. So that's what Saul does. Because the Lord did not answer him, he says, well, I'll just go try to get my answers from a witch, from witchcraft. And it's interesting that if as you see... That Saul had previously banished all witchcraft out of the nation of Israel. That is connected to Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, verse 10. This is where witchcraft is banned in the nation of Israel. This is something that God did not want his people doing. And if you notice the occurrences where witchcraft and things like that are banned, it always kind of goes along with this language. Listen to this. It says, There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. That's abortion in the Old Testament. They would sacrifice their firstborn babies, you know, six months old, three months old, one month old, weeks old. They'd sacrifice their babies into the fires, which was abortion in the Old Testament. And this witchcraft is always kind of associated with that. You'll always read this, this list of things. Don't make your son or your daughter to pass through the fire. Don't have any that use divination. This is Deuteronomy 18 and 10 or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. Necromancer, if you say, what in the world is that? That's where somebody deals with the spirits of the dead. Now, here's the interesting thing about necromancy, and that's what this woman is doing. This woman, this witch, it says she has a familiar spirit. She's dealing with the spirit of what she thinks is a dead person. But in reality, what that is are demons. That's what she's really dealing with. Because we know that the spirit of dead people, whenever they die, they either go upward to the Lord in heaven or they go into the lake of fire. They go into hell where they, that's where they are. There's no in-between place where the Lord, you know, lets these spirits escape for a little while. See, there's, there's God's people in heaven. There's the wicked that are in hell. And then there's angels and demons. So when you read about familiar spirits and things like that, it's not the spirit of someone who was dead. Now you're going to say, well, Brother Tim, you're contradicting yourself on what we're going to read here this morning. Listen, you hear me say all the time that the Lord is not a tame lion, like C.S. Lewis said of Aslan. He's not a tame lion. He can bound about and surprise us and do things that are always consistent with his nature, but shock us from time to time. And that's what the Lord does with this witch of Endor. One time. You say, well, that's the case every time. Nope. Just because God does something one time doesn't mean He does that way every time. He didn't always appear to different people in the form of a burning bush, did He? He did that for Moses. He didn't always appear as the captain of the Lord of hosts like He did for Joshua. He doesn't always appear as the wrestler like He did for Jacob who wrestled Him throughout the night. You see, He can appear in different ways and do things His way, but He'll always do it the right way because He's God. And so Saul is asking to go and seek someone in the nation that he has banned already from being in the nation. That's very contradictory. It kind of reminds you of the politicians of our day and time, doesn't it? You know, one day it's hot, one day it's cold. Situational ethics makes it where I need to support this particular thing on this particular day, well then somewhere down the road, I'll be on the other side. That's exactly how Saul was. Well, I've banished the witches and the wizards and the necromancers and those with familiar spirits and the charmers. You ever heard of a snake charmer? That's, what, that's kind of what that's talking about. But I banished the magicians, and I banished the charmers and the witches, but it'll be okay for me to seek it, you know, because I'm the king. He makes an exception for himself. That's the way we all are to some degree. It says, Then said Saul to his servants, Seek me a woman that hath the familiar spirit. This is verse 7. And so they said there is a woman who has a familiar spirit at Endor. And Saul disguised himself. And what happens here, Saul goes to this witch And this woman who has a familiar spirit says, hey, I can't do this because the king has banished us from the land. But what was she still doing in the land? You ever wondered that? Why was this lady still here? And so Saul goes on, and if you look down in verse 11, Saul tells her, you're not going to be harmed. I need you to do this for me. And the woman says, whom shall I bring up unto thee? What familiar spirit do you want me to bring up to you? And he said, bring me up Samuel. Remember, Samuel the prophet is dead. Samuel the prophet, his spirit is in heaven and his body's in the ground. And so the woman proceeds and she calls up the familiar spirit and Samuel comes up. And it is Samuel. The Lord has allowed and permitted Samuel to speak in the form of a spirit that looked like who Samuel was whenever he was on this earth. He speaks to Saul and it terrifies the woman. You want to know why it terrifies the woman? Because this spirit was not familiar to her. That's what it means when someone like this woman would speak with familiar spirits. It's something she was familiar with. Some demon that she was interacting with that she was familiar. So she's shocked when she sees something that she's not familiar with. Now, let's think about some notable great philosophers out there like Mother Goose. My favorite of all of the Disney cartoons, my favorite of all time was Robin Hood. Y'all remember Robin Hood the fox? He was a fox, and Little John was a bear. That is my favorite of all the Disney movies. And those are the old days, back in the old days, when there really wasn't any position with Disney other than just good family entertainment and turning classics into good entertainment. So if you've ever seen that, which I highly recommend it, it's one of the shortest ones, by the way. And so in one of the first few scenes, Little John and Robin Hood, the fox and the bear, they see the prince's procession going down the dirt road. And so they say, hey, let's try to have some fun here. And so they dress up as fortune tellers. They dress up as witches, basically. And they stop the wagon on the side of the road. And, you know, Prince John is deceived and Prince John wants to hear everything that they've got to say and Robin Hood puts on a great show and they're deceiving him and it's dark and they've got this little little fireflies inside of a balloon that are are floating around in the dark and he's just mesmerized. And ultimately what happens is Prince John gets left in a mud hole in his pajamas. They rob him blind. (laughs) And it's a very cute little interaction there. And it made me think of this, of a familiar spirit. The, The basic root word of of what we've got going on here with witches, witchcraft, familiar spirits is like a ventriloquist. It's like a ventriloquist where someone can throw their voice, where someone can sound like someone else. I'm not saying that the the witch had a little puppet sitting on her leg, you know, talking like we think of ventriloquy. But I'm telling you, that she was able to present this in such a way, and maybe it was a demonic spirit that would speak through her, but she would sound like someone else, or she could throw her voice in a way that it sounded like the voice was coming from different places. Now, a lot of that was just witchcraft and magic. You know, they would just deceive people. There's a lot, a lot of that is what it was. And that's why this woman is so upset. Because this is not her throwing her voice. This is not the spirit that she is familiar with. This is Samuel. This is actually the real Samuel. And what transpires between Samuel and Saul is not heard by anyone else but Saul and Samuel. Saul is the only one that hears this. Now another word that is connected with familiar spirits, witchcraft, wizardry, and all of that is a word that we don't use anymore. It's called soothsaying. The Lord said, forbid all soothsayers from the land. That's a funny little word, but it was a very common word in the Old English. And it it basically means, sooth means truth, okay? And soothsayer literally means truthsayer, fortune-teller, telling the the future. And that's what Saul is wanting to know. He's wanting to know what the future holds, because God won't answer him. Some of you are familiar with Shakespeare. You know, one of the words he used was forsooth. That means for truth. And it basically means this is truth. So if you put the two words together and think about it in terms of our English today, it's also connected to the word smooth. So to say smooth, something that would soothe you. All those words are connected in this particular word. So Saul wants to be soothed by what's coming. You see, he's nervous he's nervous he's anxious, he's depressed, he's got all this anxiety going on, and he wants to be soothed. He wants somebody to tell him something that soothes him. He wants a soothsayer. That's the word, soothsayer. So I want you to think about that. There's a lot of soothsaying, saying out there today. Now Saul is going to the witch to find out what's going to happen to him in the future and what his you know, purpose is gonna be in the future. Now think about things that are out there today. I tried to really get my brain to working on this. Things out there that project upon us you know, who we are, what we should do, and what the future holds. I thought about the TV ads that are out there. You know, The TV ads are trying to project on you, you need this, you ought to buy this. And some of them are very good. <laughs> some of them are very good. They're very tricky. And then, of course, when you get it, then maybe it's not like what you thought or it doesn't fulfill the need that you thought it would fulfill or whatever. But that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to trick you in the TV ads. They're trying to present to you, you need to buy this. You need to spend your money for this. When I was a kid, there was a thing called the U.S. Calvary Store magazine. And I lived out of that magazine. It was all, you know, camouflage. Uh, everything related to military. And I could, you know, back in those days, we didn't have two-day shipping with Amazon. And I waited for six weeks to get a delivery from the U.S. Cavalry Store magazine. I love that. You could even order, you know, you could even order uh, fake grenades in that thing. I mean, and and of course I did. I mean, I was all things military. And it just just enthralled me when I would see the picture. You know, it projected onto me, this is going to make you better. You're going to enjoy this. This is going to enrich your life. Think about things that project onto us who we are, what we need, maybe what the future holds. You know, it goes without saying. You could look at things like the social media that's out there today. You know, TikTok, you know, Instagram, all these different things that they're projecting onto us what we need to be or what we ought to be. And a lot of times that has some very serious and dire consequences, especially when you realize everything on there, especially when it comes to the image of people it's doctored up, that it's not reality. If you saw ninety nine point nine percent of those folks that are projecting this perfection on social media, if you saw them in the morning when they wake up and yawn their first yawn, you'd probably run out of the room screaming. <laughs> they don't look like they do on the social media, so but that's projecting something on you. What about Galatians the third chapter, and verse one? Listen to this language. We're talking about things that are bewitching out there in the world today. Paul says, Galatians 3 and 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? The word bewitched is very similar to the things we're looking at in the Old Testament. It means to charm or to fascinate by false representations. One of the deeper definitions of bewitched said to fascinate you, to bring evil on one by feigned praise or the evil eye. And in parenthesis, it had this word, hoodoo. H-O-O-D-O-O. And that also made me think of my grandmother McCool. She would all often say, hey, I'm hoodoodled. This is hoodoodled me. And I didn't even know what that meant. There's a lot of things she said I didn't know what she meant. But I kind of got the feel for it. So this is Paul saying, there are a group of people who are teaching something that are bringing this false narrative to you that is bewitching you. You say, what in the world was that? It was a false gospel. In the book of Galatians, the whole, basically the whole book is about how there is no other gospel than the gospel that the Apostle Paul preached and the other apostles preached. And here's what they were saying. They were bringing a false narrative to the people and it was captivating them. They were saying... Yes, the Lord has paid for your sins, but you have to do something to kick that in or add something to it or keep the law. That's what they were saying. And that's not the gospel, see? That's not the good news. The good news is the Lord has done it all. And if you believe that and you love Him for that, then that's just evidence that you are His. And Paul said, don't be foolish and don't buy into that false narrative about grace. It's not grace plus works, otherwise it's no longer grace. It is grace alone, and it's mercy alone. And it was like witchcraft, bewitching them. But you know why? Listen, this is why. Because it sounds good to your flesh. You understand that you've got two natures inside of you. This is all through the New Testament especially. You've got two natures inside of you as a born-again child of God. The Apostle Paul writes explicitly about this in the book of Colossians and in the book of Ephesians. When you're born again, there is a division that occurs inside your heart. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart, and there is a battle now that goes on between the flesh, the nature, and the spiritual side of you, which is what God has done to you. God, It is a piece of God in you. And there's a constant conflict going on there. The nature says, you know, your human nature says, I'm okay, I'm a good person, I deserve this, I deserve that. But your spiritual side says you're not okay. You're not a good person, that you're depraved in sins. And God has saved you from that condition. So if you have somebody coming along with a, who's a smoothsayer, a sooth, a soothsayer, then so you're not that real. You're not really that bad of a person. You know, you're not really that bad. You got it in you to be a child of God. You, you need to kick it in, but that's not grace. And that's not mercy. And Paul said, Galatians, you've been bewitched by this. It has bewitched you. They have projected upon you a false narrative. It is bad. We are lost in our sins until God does something to us. And the ultimate conclusion of that is, if that's the way it is, and we know that it is, who gets the glory for that? Only God can get the glory. So they were being bewitched by a false teaching. And it fascinated them. Oh, I'm not that bad of a person. Oh, I'm not really depraved in my sins. Oh, there is a little bit of good in every man. And we just got to figure out how to kick it in through the Spirit. That's not how it works. That is a bewitching false gospel. And the Apostle Paul said, you're being fascinated by these things that are not even true. It's replacing God's Word. You see, that's what happens with sooth saying, smooth saying. It's going to bewitch us. You know, you're really okay. You shouldn't be having any problems. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be worried about, you know, the things that are going on around you. You know, it's all part of God's plan. That's bewitching. Listen to me. When sin entered the world 6,000 or so years ago, what God made perfect was broken. Man broke what God made that was perfect. And ever since then, we're dealing with a broken world. The reality. See, God's going to tell you reality. And the reality is the world is broken. You are broken. We all are broken. It's because of sin. Sin is what I've heard some call an obnoxious intruder into the creation of God. It intrudes into God's creation. And the next thing you know, we've got these problems going on. So any problem that you have in your life right now, it relates back to the brokenness of this world, to sin. And any false narrative that tells you anything other than that is not from the Lord. It's bewitching anything that alters reality think about you know the false gospel We can relate to that because we believe in grace, but think about other things that alter reality out there I mean illegal drugs is a is an easy. That's a no-brainer as we say because it alters reality I've had experience in dealing directly with people who were either on illegal drugs or abusing drugs that were legal And it always comes back down to the altering of their reality. They don't know how to deal with this brokenness or this situation or how to handle this. And so they go to a place that will alter reality. The drugs just mask over the feeling. They just mask over the emotion. They just mask over what is there. And when they wear off, the person's just right back to square one. See, that is a form. I'm not saying that all drugs are bewitching but some are for sure. You can take the hard drugs like meth and heroin and uh, you know, the, the ongoing use of marijuana and other things, that, uh, cocaine and things like that. Those things are, are bewitching. Those are of the devil. But Now somebody can take something that is not necessarily bewitching and can turn it into something that is bewitching because they become addicted to it, you see? Oh, we're, we're just a mess, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, it's just a broken world. But isn't it good to know that God, the Word of God... And the ministry, I pray to the good Lord, is going to tell you the truth about reality. Not just soothsaying, not just smooth things, but reality. That's what we need is reality. And Saul is going to try to get something smoothed over for him. He wants to have it smoothed over. Soothed. Soothing his conscience. So why does he seek a witch? Number one, God would not answer him. He wanted to know his future, he wanted to find himself, and of course he gets more than he bargained for. You know, what what would you do if you knew right now the clock is running and you have 24 hours to live? What would you do? That would be... I don't know that that would be soothing. <laughs> now, if you keep your mind on where you're headed and, and what's going to happen right after you take that last breath, oh, that, that, you might get excited. I, I would think if you're a believer in grace and truth that a little bit of you, you, you might get excited about that, you know. But at the same time, you've got 24 hours to live. What are you going to do with that 24 hours? I mean, I personally would, would try to do everything right. I'd try to do everything I possibly could. And make any amends I need to make, make everything right that I could possibly make right, you know, confess, beg for forgiveness, you know, whatever the situation may be, you know, just you try to do right for those last 24 hours. And that's what Saul gets. The witch at Endor, she sees an old man covered up in a cloak come up out of wherever, conjured up out of her witchery spells. And don't think for one second that God caved in to her witch spells. No, our God who can bound about and do as he pleases, and he's not a tame lion, he chose that moment to let the spirit of Samuel appear to Saul and speak to Saul only. And the witch was terrified. She said, I see an old man. And Saul says, "What's he look like? And she describes it. He says, that's Samuel. And so Saul and Samuel have this interaction. And look down in, this is 1 Samuel 28, verse 14. He says to the witch, what form is he of? And she said, An old man cometh up, and he is covered with a mantle or a robe, a cloak. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? There's a little bit of humor there in in the Word of God. And Saul answered, I am sore distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me, and answereth me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, that thou mayest make known unto me what I shall do. You know, be careful what you ask for. Verse 16, Samuel says, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord has departed from thee and has become thine enemy? That's a bad state to get in when the Lord has become your enemy. It can happen to any of us. It happened to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Many times the Lord, they, they positioned themselves against God and therefore God became their enemy. Look at verse 17. And the Lord hath done to him as he spake by me. And the Lord has done to Saul as the Lord spake by Samuel. For the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand and given it to thy neighbor even to David. Verse 18. Because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executest his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. By the way, the Amalekites is who David had to go to to get his wives back, and the men had to get their stuff and their children and their wives back from. If Saul had done what God told him to do, you know, 15, 20-something years before, that wouldn't even be an issue. So Samuel takes Saul all the way back to the beginning when Saul began to rebel. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. That's by the way, that's a side note. That's one way we know Saul and his sons were children of God. That's the sons right there includes Jonathan. Okay, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Jonathan, who was the close friend of David. We know that Saul was a child of God because Samuel said, Tomorrow you're gonna be twenty-four hours from now, you're gonna be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So you see, Saul went to all this trouble to go and seek an ungodly source like a witch. And what does he find out? If we had question and answer right now, I know that y'all would get it. He finds out the very thing that he already knew. He already knew this. He already knew that God had forsaken him. He already knew that God had dethroned him. He already knew that he had rebelled. And he goes and he just finds out the same old thing again. And look what happens. He falls down upon the earth. He's so upset. He's sore afraid because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him for he had not eaten bread all the day nor all the night. You see, he realizes it's up for me. This is it. This is the end of the road. So I ask you the question, where are your answers coming from? Where are your answers coming from? I hope they're not coming from TikTok or from social media or from the counselors of this world. And I pray to the good Lord that they're not coming from your heart. Your heart is deceitful. Remember, David went to his own heart and he wound up in a terrible predicament, lost his family, but God redeemed the circumstance and blessed him to recover it. Saul is seeking a witch, a non-spiritual counselor. And Saul winds up dying And several of his sons, including Jonathan, die with him. You see, these are things that carry grave consequences for us as children of God. We need to be very careful what type of counsel and what type of advice we seek. Is it a non-spiritual counsel? Is it a non-spiritual advisor? As we close our thoughts here this morning, 1 Chronicles 10 and 13, you know, there's some other little nuggets in the Word of God about things that go on at different times and in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, you have a, a different account of the same thing here that happens to Saul in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. And I want to share 1 Chronicles 10 because it's, it's so good. So, this is the same thing basically that's said in the last chapter of, of 1 Samuel, but we want to use 1 Chronicles chapter 10. Listen to what he says. This is the account of the end of Saul, and I want to, I want to read it to you. Notice he says in verse 1 Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Goboah. This is 24 hours after Samuel appears to Saul and tells him, You got 24 hours. This is one day later. So the Philistines come. It goes just like Samuel said. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul and after his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was wounded of the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and abuse me, torture him. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. So Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise on the sword and died. So Saul died and his three sons and all his house died together. This is the end of Saul. This is the end of that crooked king. And if you skip on down to verse 13, it tells you, you Say, it's just so sad. Why did, really, why did Saul really have to die? The Word of God is explicit on this. Verse 13 of that same chapter. So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord. Can that be any plainer? You know, God is the God of all possibilities. I've said from the beginning of talking about Saul and David, Saul could have turned in his resignation papers at any time and said, David, I'll be your number one general. I'm not the king anymore. That's a possibility. Saul could have not pursued David and tried to kill him. And you know, he could have done something totally different. He could have repented. He's a child of God. But he dies for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord. You know, a lot of people get up in arms about the New Testament where it talks about a sin unto death. It's not talking about a sin unto eternal death. It's talking about a sin unto death now, here and now. And children of God can commit that. Saul committed a sin unto death because he transgressed what God clearly said to do. So don't think for one second that we as children of God can't find ourselves in a position like, why am I about to die? Maybe we've committed a sin unto death. You see, we know that's what happened to Saul. We know that he transgressed the law of God. And the sin unto death for one person could be different for another person. So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not. And also... Now, what, this, this gives you an indication of how merciful God is. He also died for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it. He also died, God let him go into physical death because he sought the witch at Endor. It almost sounds like, well, if he'd really repented right there, if he'd confessed and turned from all of that, you know, the Lord is so merciful, he might have spared him and let him go into retirement or maybe become an advisor to the next king, which I don't think... I think the only advice you could take from Saul would be on what not to do as a king, right? It says, He inquired not of the Lord, therefore he slew him, and turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. Saul had other possibilities. He could have asked to be David's general, asked to be David's advisor. He could have turned it all in. But ultimately what happened to Saul was that he did not seek the Lord. He did not do the Lord's will. He did not follow what the Lord had instructed him to do. And I don't know that you can find maybe Lot in the Old Testament, you know, Lot, the nephew of Abraham, totally irrational, totally unreachable. I don't know if you can find somebody worse than Saul who consistently over and over and over again was so irrational. Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 1 and 17, and let us hearken unto this. Solomon said, "...the wisest man that ever lived aside from Jesus." Ecclesiastes 1 and 17. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also vexation of spirit. You see, he is talking about sin. Sin is madness and folly. Madness is an old English term that we don't really use anymore other than we'll say somebody is mad or angry. But in the old English term, madness ultimately meant insanity, insanity. There was a word that we do not use anymore called stultify. It's another word for insane. So sin will stultify you. It almost sounds like being stunned. It will cause a person to lose their mind. And we can see that in Saul. He became totally unhinged because of his madness, because of his sinfulness. The other word there, folly, we don't use much either. Solomon said it's madness and folly. And I hate it, Sister Tracy's not here today, but... The word I'm about to use, she can't stand this word. and She cringes whenever I use this word. But I'm going to use this word in the biblical sense of this definition. And especially you young guys, do not go home and say, well, Brother Tim used this word so I can use it. Sister Tracy doesn't like this word. It's the word stupid. And that is the basic root word of folly, the root meaning of folly. It means to be stupid. To not make any sense. And some of you are smirking right now. And I'm not talking about the way that you use the term stupid. Like you're a stupid person. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in the sense of sin, a person becomes stupefied. It means to be insensible. It means to be senseless. To form a plan without skill or without thinking about it. And I love the old 1828 Webster's definition. It has some sayings in there. And I thought, how this applies to us today. Webster had this underneath the definition of folly, where it talks about being stupefied, stupid. And it says, Observe what loads of stupid rhymes oppress us in corrupted times. (laughs) And immediately my mind went to most of the music industry today. (laughs) The things that captivate us today. You see, sin, it's stupid. It makes you stupefied. In Saul's case, he committed sin so much over and over again that he actually became mentally unhinged. Living out your life in sinful patterns that are against the Word of God will cause you to become more and more unhinged and make more and more foolish decisions. Can we agree the ongoing commission of sin and habitual sin, it will cause mental and emotional instability. It will cause you to have more emotional instability, and it will cause you to have more mental instability as you continue to make bad choices. It destabilizes your behavior. It's senseless. Think about this. A husband and a wife have been married for 20, 30 years. Maybe more. And a husband or a wife gets in their mind, well, you know, there is actually something better out there. And a strange man or a strange woman comes along and 30 years of just throwing away all of that investment, all of that covenant time and all that they've been through, that is senseless. They begin to think in ways that are inappropriate and it habitualizes itself and manifests itself in instability. So when you see that instability out there? I'm not just talking about that. What about somebody who thinks, well, I can escape my reality by ingesting this type of drug or by presenting this type of image? Child of God, you don't want to escape your reality. You want to deal with your reality through the Word of God, not through soothsaying, saying. The only way to deal with reality is to face it. You see, sin makes us stupid. And it also causes us to be senseless. It just doesn't make sense. Think about the things that you see going on out there in the world today from the political realm to the mass shootings to the just, you know, just name it. I mean, just, and you look at it, you just go, this just seems senseless. It's because sin has its way in the world, sin has its way, and it destabilizes things. In the Garden of Eden, what happened? They were walking in peace with God every single day, speaking with God, interacting with God. They didn't know how good they had it, did they? And then what happens? The obnoxious intruder, sin, comes along, and they violate the law of God, and they don't have fellowship with God anymore. It, it made them senseless. It was senseless what they did. In our sin, and our lives, you say, well, I'm not talking about everybody else. I'm talking about me. The sin in my life is senseless. It destabilizes me emotionally and mentally. And it makes me stupid. I don't go away using that word. Next week at work, and you say, well, my preacher said you know sin is stupid, and you're just stupid. That's not the way that the word is used. You're not permitted to do that. <laughs> in the sense of how we define folly, it means it makes you that way. It destabilizes. And you cannot find a worse example than a mentally or emotionally destabilized person because of their sin as Saul, the crooked king. It didn't just happen. He didn't just wake up or he wasn't born that way and he just woke up one morning and he was that way. It happened over a systematic application of sinful patterns and habits in his life over a number of years and he's completely unhinged. Are y'all listening? That is a miserable, terrible place to be. That's a lot different, isn't it, than, oh, I listened to my heart one time. (laughs) You know, David did that many times. We all do that. But that's a lot different than, well, I listened to my heart and God got me out of this bad circumstance. No, Saul is habitually following that pattern. And it winds up killing his own sons. David listened to his heart when he went down to the Philistines, made a huge mistake, lost his family. But by the grace of God, he was able to miraculously recover them. Saul, over a number of years in his life, habitually practiced sin and rebellion against God, committed horrible acts against the name of God until he got to a point to where there was no more remedy for him. Just die. Similar thing happened to Samson. Similar things happened to other of God's children. We suffer the consequences for habitualizing ourselves in the patterns of sin. Lord, help us. Are you willing to look at your life today? Am I willing to look at mine and say, are there patterns of sin in my life that I need the grace and the mercy of God to break and establish good patterns? You know, a good habit is a lot harder to establish than a bad habit. But you can do it by the grace of God. David did it. Others in the Word of God did it. It takes application. It takes seeking God. It like, Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, what do I need to identify that needs to go in my life? And Following the Lord in humble submission and not continuing in those patterns of sin that stultify us, that lead us to mental instability, and also that make us dumb, that cause us to be senseless like madness and folly. Child of God, we're all kings and priests of God. Don't be a crooked king. You're a king and you're a priest. You're a queen and you're a priestess. We don't want to leave the ladies out. Don't be a crooked king. Don't seek crooked things like Saul did. And child of grace, do not seek the witchery, the bewitching things of this world. Whether it has to do with how you are saved, the Word of God will tell you the reality of how you were saved. It's by the grace of God plus nothing. It's not by your works, your thought, your belief. It's not by those things. It's by the grace of God and He gets all the glory. And the reality that's going on in your life right now Whether you face it or not, you can deal with it. Because God will not smooth say things to you. He will tell you the truth. A lot of times the truth hurts. You ever face those things in your life when the truth just hurts? But it's good for you. It's good to digest the truth. And it causes you to be mentally and emotionally stable. May God spare us from being crooked kings and queens. And may we follow the Lord and seek after wise counsel.